Hello and welcome to FX Talk, an eBrew podcast all about the foreign exchange market, where we break down some of the main news headlines in financial markets and give our take on what these developments might mean for the world of FX. My name is Matthew Ryan, Head of Market Strategy here at eBrew, and I'm joined as always on the podcast by two of my colleagues, our Chief Risk Officer Enrique Diaz-Alvarez and Senior Market Analyst Roman Zuruk. Welcome back, everyone, to a new episode and a new season of FX Talk. Uh, we've taken a slightly longer break in between our main episodes, so let's look back at some of the major developments we've seen in the past few weeks. Uh, and August has been a very good one for the US dollar, which has rallied against every other G10 currency and most emerging market ones as well so far this month. What has supported the dollar? Well, first of all, we've had safe haven flows into the greenback as investors fear uh, an economic slowdown in China. We've had some soft economic news out of Asia's largest economy. The recent GDP, PMIs, retail sales, industrial production have all missed expectations. Well, we've also seen some rather concerning headlines out of China's property sector, notably Country Garden, one of the largest private real estate developers, which is battling to avoid a default. In tandem, economic news out of the US has been rather strong. The labour market is in good shape and indicators of growth have been impressive. Notably, the Atlanta Fed GDP Now estimate, which is a a running forecast uh, of US GDP growth, which is currently at almost 6% annualised, which is uh, rather remarkable. Both euro dollar and sterling against the dollar have retreated from their highs in recent weeks. Sterling at one stage in mid-July was trading above the 131 level. It's since dropped to around 126. Well, the euro is also now trading around the 108 mark, which is down around about 4% in the past six weeks or so. Last week's underwhelming business activity PMI data of both the eurozone and the UK have far from helped. Both composite PMIs slumped below the level of 50, i.e. into contraction, and their lowest levels since the first COVID winter lockdowns. In the Eurozone, this index fell to just 47.0, while in the UK to 47.9, which makes for a pretty grim reading. What do you guys both make of the latest PMIs, and what do you think is driving the data? Uh, it's a difficult question. I've been a bit blindsided by them, actually. I expected the European economy to, to more or less follow um, with some lag what uh, we've seen in the US economy, which is uh, steady growth, um, ability to absorb interest rate hikes, and moderate in inflation. Um, I think that we might have underestimated the extent to which, for instance, German industry depended on both the Chinese market and um, and cheap energy inputs. Uh, we're not in seeing anything like the crisis, the energy crisis that we saw last year, but clearly it seems like the ener- the cost of energy is permanently higher for European firms. I will say that I want, it's generally, the PMI is a very good, the, the best leading indicator of what the European economy is. I don't want to belittle it in any way, but I do want to see uh, where hard data, what the hard data validates this, this, this potential downturn, because I mean, the, 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 the key pillars of strength of the European economy, as also in the G10, remain that unemployment still at lows. I think that most countries in the Eurozone, for all practical purposes, are now at at, uh, at uh, full employment. Um, the consumer balance sheets uh, and consumer savings pandemic are still, uh, still significant. 
So before I revise dramatically my view of the European economy, I want to make sure that the uh, industrial production numbers, the retail sales numbers, and the GDP numbers, which in the Eurozone will always get with a big lag, actually follow down with the PMI. However, in the past, they have done so. So we need to be mindful that this, these numbers are, are not good and they're, and they're very meaningful. Certainly the numbers are not good. And uh, as you said, Enrique, uh, a, a lot of the problems, I think, are stemming from the weakness of the German economy that we are seeing. The problem that we have witnessed right now is that it's not only manufacturing, but also the services have uh, declined and the index is below the level of 50, which denotes contraction from expansion. Uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, consequences of that for the common currency, I think we've already seen uh, quite a brutal sell-off in uh, recent weeks on the back of uh, concerns regarding global growth and regarding China, but also Eurozone. And Eurozone is uh, also particularly prone to weakness from, from China. So it's not a, a big surprise in that context. Uh, one thing, however, uh, I would be uh, interested in is how the ECB would react to the data, because they have generally signaled that uh, they are concerned about the price pressure, about input costs. And the problem that we have is also, of course, that the uh, data for wages in the Eurozone, uh, as well as generally hard data for the Euro from the Eurozone, is uh, quite lagged. So uh, we will no not know for for some time, uh, how the situation really is. Uh, so, mm, yeah, uh, definitely something to, to keep an eye on. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is something that would uh, rule out a interest rate hike uh, from the ECB. Uh, in fact, I, I think that uh, it's it's still possible uh, that the, we are going to see that. And and I think that markets uh, are also uh, recognizing the, that possibility. And if it indeed is going to happen, uh, in, and then the euro may uh, may appreciate some. Uh, as for the pound, uh, the pound is still uh, performing relatively well. I mean, this is a second best performing currency year to date. Uh, the data has been bad, but I don't think it is in any way going to stop the Bank of England from raising rates. Uh, only maybe marginally uh, will decrease uh, the terminal rate uh, there. Yes, yeah, so I mean, look, for me, I think this, this is some, some pretty concerning data. I mean, I, I would counter the point to say I, I think actually this may well ease pressure on the ECB to deliver one more hike, one or more hikes in the rest of the cycle. Similar with the, the Bank of England, I do think the BOE is probably more concerned still with stubbornly high UK inflation, but, but this will at least give them something to think about um, because the soft data that we've seen out of both the Eurozone and UK has been, has been very poor um, of late. Um, Eurozone economy has emerged from recession, but but growth still has been been very soft. We're still not seeing clear signs of retreat in core inflation. I think I'd like to keep demand quite suppressed. Uh, and as far as the Eurozone is concerned, the, the Chinese economic slowdown that we're seeing at the moment is also a big problem um, for the bloc, more so than, say, the US or even the UK, which are, which are more domestically demand-driven. Um, as far as the UK is concerned... Sorry, go for it. No, sorry. I just, I just, I just wanted to add that uh, that yeah, that uh, decision and the September ECB meeting is very finely balanced. The market is pricing a fifty percent chance of a hike. I think a lot depends on what we see in the inflation number for August, 
inflation is the one area where European data comes out earlier than U.S. data. So I think that uh, by far the most important data point of the next two weeks is going to be the Eurozone inflation, flash inflation for August that comes out this week. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as the UK is concerned, I, mean, I, I think our, our more upbeat assessment on Britain's economy has proved correct in the last uh, few months or so. But but clearly, as we've mentioned, uh, there are mounting risks to the outlook. UK inflation is stubbornly high. Rates still have a way to go in the UK, I think, and, and higher mortgage payments are likely to erode uh, spending power, particularly as more fixed terms come to an end. Um, I said this a while back, I, I would not rule out a UK recession early next year. And, and I think I, I stand by that possibility given given recent soft data. Uh, but let's move on now and talk about our second uh, main topic, which is probably the biggest news story in f- financial markets in the last few weeks or so. And that's come from China, uh, namely heightened concerns surrounding the health of the Chinese economy. Markets were buoyant in late 2022 when Chinese authorities finally brought to an end their zero COVID policy. Since then, however, data out of China has disappointed and the recovery has been nowhere near as strong as previously hoped. The latest GDP numbers showed that growth was was less than 1% on a quarterly basis in the second quarter. The PMIs are barely above a level of 50. Retail sales contracted in July, while industrial production was also effectively flat last month. Headlines out of the country's property sector have made matters worse and threatened to trigger an even more acute slowdown in activity. Shares in Country Garden crashed in, in early August as it missed international bond payments and suspended some, some, some trading on its mainland bonds, stoking fears that defaults may be on the way. Uh, the Chinese yuan has subsequently fallen quite sharply and is currently trading around the 7.30 level on the US dollar while emerging market currencies have also sold off, uh, fearing that soft China demand could impact the global economy. Uh, But what do these latest headlines mean for the Chinese economy? And what impact does this have on the outlook for emerging market currencies? What do you guys both think? Well, um, clearly... I mean, I've been following markets for over 20 years, and there's always people that warn about a severe Chinese crisis. And if these people have been wrong for 20 odd years, and it looks like they're finally right. Uh, in fact, I think I think that uh, was, was, it, it could be a structural break in that the, the, the Chinese economy's ability to grow with very low consumption, massive investment, and uh, papering over any contraction with either uh, massive real estate construction or infrastructure spending, that that model is 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 pretty exhausted, and we're getting to the point where um, uh, that's that's not going to work anymore. So, um, in terms of, I, I do think that this time that the Chinese economy is going to take much longer than the previous episodes to recover, for that reason. But I remain a bit baffle in that the commodity prices are not really suffering as much as you would expect them to in a situation where China uh, fails to to rebound. I mean, we're basically um, stabilized at, at reasonably high levels. Oil is in the mid to high $80 per barrel range. Uh, so I think that as long as those commodity prices remain high, or at least fail to to break the new lows, 
I still think that the general or general positive in emerging markets outside of uh, China's more direct trading partners is is going to hold. And in fact, we have seen that in the how relatively well Latin American currencies in particular have held up. So to summarize, yes, this seems to be a much more deeper contraction or, or much deeper structural crisis in China that we've seen for the last 20 years, perhaps. But um, it is likely that most emerging markets will be able to replace Chinese demand and and find alternatives, alternative uh, sources of economic growth. And so I remain very positive on on. Um, emerging market currencies, again, excluding those of the China's most direct trading partners. The news from China that we have been getting for quite some time, because it's not only like the recent weeks, but in fact, this has been going on for months and they have been quite depressing. Uh, and they certainly are a, a threat to some currencies. Uh, but uh, Enrique, you pointed out a, a very important thing with the with the commodity market. Uh, when it comes to uh, China uh, per se, uh, I'm still waiting for some positive news. But uh, since uh, for now there haven't been any. One uh, silver lining is that the uh, is that authorities uh, seem to be uh, getting increasingly serious about helping the economy and. Uh, supporting the Chinese currency. So we have seen uh, quite strong fixings, but we have also uh, seen uh, authorities trying to uh, support investors' confidence by halving the stamp duty recently, uh, by uh, cutting the margin requirements, uh, and also doing some, some other things. And uh, in general, I think that they are increasingly serious about uh, guiding the economy through this period. No, no, I, I just sorted it out, but I agree that that's, that's the case. But I think that what's missing for a proper recovery, I don't think those, those measures that worked in the past are going to work this time. What they really need to do to, is to, to start changing the Chinese economy structurally towards higher consumption and less investment. And, and they seem to be extremely reluctant to do what needs to be done, which is some, you know, uh, Western style stimulus spending, cash payments to, to families, and again, to replace a lot of this wasteful investment that they've been making over the last couple of years, 10 years maybe, with consumption as an economic engine. Uh, Chinese consumption as a percentage of the economy is much, much lower than than the advanced economies, and I think that they need to close that gap in order to grow more sustainably. But they're very reluctant to do that. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, most, if not all of the economists are calling for, the fiscal stimulus from China. Uh, but they also have some doubts about it and, and some reasons why they are not doing it. Uh, the, the effectiveness of it uh, may not be uh, as good as, let's say, in the US, because if people, let's say, they are receiving the checks, maybe they are going to save this money instead, uh, as they have been doing in the past, because the savings rate in China is uh, is absolutely uh, enormous. Maybe uh, the, the situation uh, will also be problematic and uh, because of the high level of local debt, uh, which could also uh, warrant not not going uh, all in with the fiscal stimulus. I mean, this is a rather a difficult case. Uh, what what they should do, uh, and I don't think that that we can be certain that if they indeed delivered the fiscal stimulus, then we would see a sustained rebound. But uh, let's see how they do with those uh, measures that they have uh, currently deployed. Uh, and uh, I, I think that they are 
increasing uh, and uh, to me they are a positive sign and some stability in the Chinese assets that uh, I have seen uh, although uh, uh, largely influenced by or, or orchestrated by that uh, is also to an extent encouraging so uh, hopefully uh, we will soon see a bottom of, of this Chinese Chinese weakness Yes, well, look. I mean, it sounds as though I'm probably the most pessimistic of the three of us when it comes to China. Because I think I think these these recent developments do make me slightly less optimistic on on risk assets. Um, you now we've been saying for a while. I've been saying for a while that we thought that Chinese growth would pick up later in the year as supply chains and demand normalizes following into zero COVID, while fiscal and monetary stimulus remains accommodative. Um, but the recent data has been very underwhelming. We've really not seen anything like the recovery I'd hoped for. And on top of that, we had a number of additional risks, which we've all mentioned, you know, lack of room for more fiscal spending, concerns surrounding the state of the property sector, softer demand from abroad as well, notably the Eurozone. Um, that means that I, I've turned from being quite hopeful on the Chinese recovery to now slightly more pessimistic. Um, and that, for me, is enough to, to slightly temper my view on emerging market currencies, even if that view is, is still a positive one. It's less so yeah. than before. Yeah, no, I agree on the margin. These are not these are negative news, but uh, the resilience of uh, asset prices, the resilience of Latin American currencies, for instance, the resilience of commodity prices in 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 the face of this rather surprising bad news out of the Chinese economy, tells you that uh, I think that there's enough enough support for economic growth worldwide. I mean, let's not forget that you know, especially in the G10, real rates are still negative in most places. Um, fiscal stimulus, the level of, of, of deficits as a percentage of the economy in in the G10, but also a lot of emerging markets remain very high, which is really unusual in a context of full employment to have uh, deficits in the, in, in, in the mid-single digits, uh, fiscal deficits everywhere. I think the, the, the conditions remain sufficiently stimulative that if you if you get less of a push going forward from the Chinese economy, I'm still comfortable being long risk and being long emerging market currencies, albeit marginally less than before. I agree with Matt. No, that's a fair point. I think in particular, if we look, as you mentioned earlier, commodity prices, um, we did see a little bit of a, of a drop in commodity prices, uh, the sort of peak of the China concerns, but actually they, they've, they've bounced back and, and are near the peaks from from late last year. So, so markets don't necessarily appear overly concerned um, just yet. I wanted to finish with our, our spotlight currency for the week, which this week is the Indian rupee. Uh, and the rupee has put in a rather middling performance in recent months. The USD INR cross has traded within a relatively narrow range. As on one hand, the currency is supported by FX intervention from the country's central bank, resilient economic performance and expectations at domestic rates will stay higher for longer. Uh, but on the other, we've seen a general worsening in sentiment towards the currencies in Asia and a move in real rates in India back into negative territory, which has partly offset some of these positive factors. Uh, but what we really want to know is, uh, does the Indian rupee present a buy, sell or a hold opportunity? Uh, what do you both think? For me, it's clearly a buy. It's uh, the Indian economy is is performing well. Um, I think in the, you know the, in India we have seen or we're seeing this, this sort of like quantitative leap forward that we perhaps saw in China 15, 20 years ago. Uh, growth is stable. Interest rates are high, 
there's no the exposure to the Chinese economy, which is the only potential downside in emerging markets, is low. Uh, the currency again is very cheap. I think it's a clear buy for me. For me, it would be probably closer to a halt. Uh, although I'm kind of uh, conflicted between a, a halt and a buy. Uh, I'm thinking that Indian rupee is certainly a, a good currency and India is a well-performing economy. Uh, as you said, growth is, is quite good. It's actually very impressive, particularly concerning what's going on uh, everywhere else. Uh, also, uh, fundamentals of the Indian economy are uh, quite uh, good. Uh, reserves are uh, rather high. The current account is uh, more or less balanced right now. Uh, and looking at the uh, thing that I'm encouraged on with regards to India of late, we have seen a strong uptick in inflation driven by uh, higher food prices. And this is something that I think uh, is likely to prevent their central bank from cutting rates uh, too soon. And we cannot even uh, exclude the possibility of a further tightening in the monetary policy, although probably this isn't a, a, base, base, canary, a base scenario. Uh, however, the Indian rupee has been hovering close to the 83 uh, level, the USD INR, uh, for a very long time. I think that this has been a line in, in the sand. Uh, and I, it, it, has, uh, it has had a rough time appreciating when uh, other EM currencies have appreciated. So this is something that is making me a bit concerning, uh, concerned about the currency. And uh, I wouldn't uh, necessarily think also that the appreciation potential of the Indian rupee is uh, very large. So I think that uh, for me would be a halt. Uh, I don't think it is likely to depreciate significantly against the dollar, uh, particularly considering that this 83 level seems to be a line in the sand. But at the same time, uh, I, uh, I'm quite disappointed by its performance and it's uh, making me uh, not, uh, not want to buy it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me, look, I would say I think it's a buy opportunity. I mean, I think the outlook of the currency is, is pretty favorable. Um, my main rationale for that view would be India's strong fundamentals, as we mentioned, which I think actually stack up very well compared to not only the, the BRICS economies, but most other emerging market ones as well. By that, I mean improving current account balance, sufficient FX reserves, which are now around 10 months worth of imports, and low external debt, which is less than 20% of GDP. Uh, real rates are negative, but I expect them to turn positive during the remainder of the year. And as we mentioned, India looks set to be um, the fastest growing major economy in the world this year. Um, so I, th I think that should should be positive for, for the rupee and, in my opinion, present a buy opportunity. And that's it from us. If you're keen to hear more about our thoughts on the FX market, visit eBreed's website or follow us on social media. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And let us know if there are any topics you'd like to hear more on during upcoming episodes. Keep an eye out for our next episode in a fortnight's time. Thank you all very much for listening.